I'm excited to see you all. Glad to be back. Glad to continue to study Isaiah with you. And and, um, I hope um, you had a wonderful week thinking about these chapters and about God's goodness to you and about your salvation and the fact that God granted you salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. What, What an amazing week to just reflect and meditate on these verses. And do you guys remember the days before your salvation? Do you remember what that felt like? I can recall seeking God as a young teen, but I didn't understand the mystery that seemed to surround him at the time. There was something missing in my life. I didn't know what it was. Now I know I was hungry. I was thirsty for God. Until we know our Creator, we will always be hungry and thirsty for a relationship with him uh, because we're made to have a relationship with him. So in these chapters that we studied, God is passing out invitations. They are invitations to salvation. He has them and he is going to the Jews that are in exile in Babylon. He's inviting them into his salvation. He's talking about the future nations in the millennial kingdom. He's inviting them to participate in his salvation. And the verses we read, we see many times where he says, everyone can come. These verses are for anyone who is thirsty. God has in his hand an invitation to salvation. And it's to anyone who's thirsty. This is a metaphor for desiring something to satisfy our spirit. And there's only one thing, and that's what God wants to tell them about. Everyone's invited to the gospel feast. First thing we learn about God's great salvation, turn to chapter 55. We realize it is a free gift. 55 verse 1. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money. And without cost. Lewis Harris wrote a beautiful song about this verse. So if you ever hear it sung at church, you can realize Lewis wrote that. Because he saw the great beauty in these verses. We do not pay one thing to accept God's incredible gift of salvation. We don't have to clean up first. We don't have to memorize the rosary or join a church or get baptized or change how we behave. We come to God freely. Look at Ephesians 2 on your verse sheet. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. One of my favorite old hymns has these words in it. Come, you weary You heavy laden, you sick and ruined by the fall. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Just come. That is what God's saying in this verse. We have to come. He says it four times. And to come to someone means we trust the person. We trust the one that we're coming to. In this case, we are relying on the one we're coming to. God alone for our salvation. He says, come, trust, 
but bring nothing. I love it when someone invites us for dinner and I say, what can I bring? And they say, just bring yourself. Okay. Okay, that's what, that's what God said. Just bring yourself. Come to me. Quit relying on something else for your salvation. I was reading a book last year about Winston Churchill. I thought I would find it interesting. I got so bored, I only read half of it. But <laughs> I got to do his childhood and his teenage and his college, and then I was like, oh, not too fun. But when he was in college, I thought this was the funniest story, but it probably was sort of a tragedy then, but to read it is, is sort of funny. He was in college. His cousins were there. They were grown up, but they'd grown up on this huge estate, and so they decided to go play hide-and-go-seek like they did when they were kids. And they had a lot of places to hide. And so they were out there running around. And Winston Churchill was a very proud man. And he was not it. He was one hiding. And he was on a bridge. And all at once he looked up. And they were up high. There was a bridge that connected two hills on their land. He was in the middle of it. And he looks at one end of the bridge. And there's one cousin. And he turns around and looks at the other, and there's the other cousin, and they are making their way in to get him. And he was so proud and not wanting to get caught so badly that he looked around and he realized there's trees, tall trees growing on the side of the bridge. And he calculates, if I just leap out, I will grab on a trunk and I will, he will not be able to get me. Well, he didn't calculate very well. He leaps out. That's the last thing he remembers. He wakes up in a hospital. He misses an entire semester of college, and he almost dies. He grabs onto that tree as best he can. He's thinking it's going to hold him. He can't hold on to it. He falls all the way, spends the next uh, semester in a hospital wishing he had never played hide-and-go-seek. Uh, and I thought, what a great illustration for us. We... Uh, God is seeking us, and sometimes before we come to him, we want to get ourselves right, or we want to prove to him we're good, or we're looking for something else to satisfy us. He makes us afraid. We feel uncomfortable. He's running towards us. We look around and jump out and cling to the dumbest things in the world, and we find out it leads to our destruction. God says, just turn around. Come to me when I tag you. Your life will never be the same. Come. God's salvation satisfies our soul. Look at verse 2. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest of fare. God is saying right here, why would you invest your life in things that don't satisfy. What God offers in it is an inner feast that will delight our souls. In fact, wine and milk are symbols of complete satisfaction. God provides milk, which is necessary for life. It's necessary. But he also provides joy in life. That's represented by the wine. Together, complete satisfaction. And you can imagine those Jewish captives in Babylon to hear these news, this invitation while they are in their dark captivity. They would be so relieved to think God can meet our physical needs. God can meet our spiritual needs. And that is true for us. 
We are in dark captivity before we come to Christ. We are excited to accept that invitation that will completely satisfy. Look at Colossians 1. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we can waste our life clinging to those things that destroy us, that satisfy us in all the wrong ways. But Mick Jagger actually said something wise once in his life. We won't get no satisfaction from those things. We can't get no satisfaction. Only God has created us to be our all in all and satisfy us. When our soul is satisfied, we are satisfied indeed. God's offer of salvation is a new covenant established through Christ. Look at verse 3. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. I love that. Your Bible may say my faithful love or my sure mercies promised to David. David was promised in his covenant with God. That from his seed would be a ruler who would sit on his kingdom forever. That was fulfilled by Jesus Christ when he was raised from the dead to live eternally. Paul connected this verse with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at Acts 13 on your verse sheet. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised David. So what's happening here is God is saying is, I fulfilled my promise to David. I will fulfill these promises to you, O Israel. And for all of us, he's saying, as I loved and had sure mercies for David, I am passing those on to you. That's my invitation of salvation. That's the new covenant in Christ. Salvation involves turning to the Lord and receiving pardon for our sins. Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon This is an amazing truth that Isaiah is trying to teach Israel. When God's invitation is passed out, the hour of grace has struck. The time for action has come. He's reaching out with an invitation in his hand. We must reach out. We must grasp that invitation because he's seeking us. God seeks man. Man must seek the Lord. And when we're seeking him, what that's saying is we are turning towards him. What are we turning away from? Our sins, our past, our wicked ways, our pride, anything that has kept us from turning to Jesus. In Babylon, they were into a lot of sins. Verse 7 is about them, their evil ways, the wicked man. And so he's saying, you... In Babylon, repent, and if you turn to God, you will discover pardon for your sins. An unbelievable truth. It's an unbelievable truth for all of us, 
that when we discover the mercy of God, our sins, our pardon, wow, every day that should make a difference in our life. Every single day. I love how Jesus made this truth come alive. He had a parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. To us, looking on the outside, we watch them both going to the temple. We watch them both going to pray. If you asked us, we would say, they both are seeking God. They're both seeking God. But the one, the Pharisee prays, and this is what he says. God, I thank you that I'm not like other sinners. I thank you that I am not a robber, an evildoer, an adulterer, or even like this guy next to me, a tax collector. I thank you for that, but I fast and I give 10% of all that I have. And there's the tax collector on this side, and it said he's so humble that he won't even lift his eyes up to look at heaven. He bows down. He beats his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, he's the one who went home justified before God. Because as he turned to God, he was acknowledging his deep need and his sins. He was depending on the mercies of God. What great comfort this brings us as our soul can be greatly troubled by sin. I saw this part of a song. I once was an outcast, a stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, an alien by birth, but I've been adopted. My name's written down. I'm an heir to a mansion, a robe, and a crown. In salvation, we start a new life. We turn away from everything that kept us from being who God wants us to be. Look at Acts 10. All the prophets testify about Jesus that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then salvation is certain because God's grace is unfathomable. Look at verse 8. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If we find it hard to believe God will have mercy on us sinners, if the enormity of our guilt causes us great despair, God intervenes from what Isaiah said right here, and he says, let me try to define my grace. And he tries to come up with the most far-reaching example that he can use for us to try to get just a little bit of an understanding of God's unbelievable grace in our life. He says, as high as the heavens are above the earth is my pardon for you. Unbelievable. And he says, my ways aren't your ways. That's what my ways are like. So much better. So much broader. And so God is going to offer proof for what Isaiah just said. The magnificence of God's forgiveness in our life. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. We speak God's secret wisdom, a wisdom which has been hidden, which God destined for our glory before time began. It is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us. Salvation brings about life change. Look at verse 12. 
You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. This passage really deals with Judah when they return from Babylon. But remember we talked about the promise fulfilled here, not quite yet in the future. This is also a picture of Israel entering the millennial kingdom, now grasping the salvation that God had for them. And we see what a joyous day it is, joy, peace. When they left Babylon, they didn't leave in anxiety and panic like they did Egypt. They left in peace. There was singing. The people rejoiced so much that it felt like to them when they looked out at nature that nature was rejoicing with them. The trees clapping, the flowers applauding. Instead of the thorn brush and the briars that prick us and wound us, there'll be pine trees and blossoming myrtles. A picture of a change from God's judgment to God's salvation and God's mercy. And then God says in those verses, this won't be for Israel's glory, but for my renowned and everlasting sign for myself. You know, back in those days, if there was a king and he did a mighty battle and he was feeling very proud of himself, they would inscribe on big rocks what they did, what their victory was, what happened. And then they'd leave it there because in their mind, all the future generations will come and stop and read these rocks and be wowed about the incredible bravery and the conquering heroes and the kings that went before them. But guess what would happen? They'd be gone a short time. Along would come a new conqueror, find the rock, scrape everything off of it, find another rock, and write his own name on it. God is saying in here, no one is going to do that with my work of salvation. I'm doing this for my renown. No one can conquer it. It will be famous. It will be amazing. It will never be destroyed. And I think that it also describes the salvation of an individual. Aren't those things that happen to us? A joy that we didn't realize we were missing comes into our heart. A peace that takes away the fear and confusion that plagued us. And the loss of an inner song in our heart goes away because all of a sudden we discover, I know the words to the greatest song in the world. The song of salvation. When I was in high school, I went to a really strange church. It's sort of that hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. They did a lot of things that fortunately God pulled me out of, and I kind of would compare what they said to the Word of God. But they sang some really great songs. And that's what I loved. And that's where I learned that song, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will pass away. But there's something about that name. And I would just sing that song at the top of my lungs. I loved it so much because I realized that is the song of salvation, Jesus. 
We had that guest speaker, Ted Bauer, this week, and I wish everybody could have got to know him because he had so much info and he was rattling all that off. He just loved Jesus. And if you got alone with him, he talked about it. He said that's why he does what he does. He's an evangelist in a really dark place. He's a bright light for Christ in the world of Hollywood. And so um, I was thanking him. He was at uh, something here and he was leaving. And I said, I just want to thank you for your passion for Christ. And he stopped and looked at me and said, Jesus is, is all I know. It's all I know. That's right. That's all we have to know. We know the song of salvation. We know Jesus. That's all we have to know in this world. We cling to him and then we realize I am no longer who I used to be. Who you are sitting here today is not who you would have been apart from Christ absolutely true my sister I've shared she was two years older than me and she was in the um, let's see the time of the 60s and some kind of wild things going on and she had her wild music and her wild friends and we shared a bedroom and she went away to a young life camp and she learned the song of salvation and when she came back she had nobody she had not one friend who would still hang out with her And at the time, she was probably 16 or 17 years old. And I can remember God used it in my life because I didn't know the Lord yet. And I would lay in my bed and she would lay in her bed and cry herself to sleep every night. And I would think, whatever she got in that vacation she went on, it was enough to make her give up everything in her life. And I can remember just thinking, what could it be? which God used to make me ready to come to know him. And guess who turned out to be all my sister's new best friends? All my friends. She discipled us. She was with us everything we did. She became, God gave her a new group of friends. Salvation brings life change. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God's servant of salvation. We know the what of salvation from these verses. What about the how? How does God's servant, Jesus, bring about God's great salvation? And I purposely haven't said much about him to this point because I wanted to save Jesus and the work of what he did for us for chapter 53. Probably the most remarkable chapter in the whole Bible. How can you read this chapter and not realize how perfectly it describes and defines the man named Jesus Christ who wouldn't come for another 700 years? It's amazing. It's a faith builder. Um, Ted was telling me that I was like, what did the Jewish people do with this chapter? And he said a lot of them believe this chapter is about the nation of Israel and the suffering that they've had over the years. We know it's not about the nation. It's about the nation's Messiah. These verses in chapter 53 are actually a death report about God's servant. But here's the most amazing thing. Who gives the report here? Israel. Those Jewish people that accepted God's invitation of salvation. 
and their eyes were open. They were lost, and now they were found. And the reality of God's servant of salvation is made apparent to them. And they're the ones we're listening to in Isaiah 53. Um, this would be the children um, of Israel that survived the Great Tribulation. And now they're in the Millennial Kingdom with Christ. But you know what? I also believe... This applies to any Jewish person who comes to Christ between the church age and the time that, of Jesus' second return. And you know when that started? Right after Jesus ascended. Many Jewish people came to Christ because of the testimony of the disciples and the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so when we read this, we can also envision a group of enlightened Jews and I wanted to envision them standing on maybe a dusty street corner with their Jewish friends who now believe and they're talking about Jesus. And what they report in chapter 53 is a confession of their blindness and their unbelief and a description of who Jesus really is. Let's look at, learn a little bit more about these people in chapter 52, verse 13. It's describing these Jews. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. This servant who Israel did not consider important, will actually bring about the most important thing the nation needs, cleansing, sprinkling from his blood, just as they used to use in um, sacrifices that the priest performs. And the Israel, the nation's mouth will be shut because they will be speechless that they had not understood. Never will any man be brought so low as to realize their blindness of who Jesus really was. And never was any man brought so high as Jesus, the one they were blind to. What is it that they will understand about this simple man from Nazareth named Jesus Christ? And we realize in chapter 53, amazing as it is, Repentant Israel tells the life story of God's servant Jesus from the cradle to the grave. Look at verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus was rejected because of his seeming insignificance. Jewish believers express their amazement in these verses at their ignorance. And they carry in their heart the guilt of rejecting this remarkable figure who was among them that they just saw as a sufferer in their midst. So can't you picture a group of bewildered Jews confessing this to each other after Jesus' ascension? They would say something like, we despise 
his quiet entrance into our place and among men. We despise his poor and his obscure family. We despise his lack of pomp and his lack of majesty. His beginnings were so humble from some little town called Nazareth. He was a little boy who ran around Nazareth. So why would we notice him? He was like a simple shoot that comes out out of the cracked earth, like a little piece of greenery that is doomed to wither and die. And he did. Look how easily he died on the cross. That expression, a root out of dry ground, is a picture of Israel's state of affairs at the time. It describes they were a wasteland politically. They came up into soil of the Romans who abused them and uh, ruled over them. It describes the wasteland of Israel spiritually when Jesus came on the scene. Then we'd hear their voices again. There was nothing attractive about him. Nothing. He didn't have any emblems of royalty on him. And for us, beauty is very important. Think about the past. Think about our heritage. We know Joseph was a handsome man. He was regal and royal as he was in Egypt. We know David was a handsome warrior. Why would we give any attention to this man who was a nothing and nothing to look at? They wrote these first two verses like a lament because they considered the condition of the servant to be lamentable. He had peasants for parents, a manger bed, fishermen as his friends, poverty his constant lot, the common people his followers, thieves that hung next to him, the lowly and the poor forming this new church. These are humiliations indeed. But not only was Jesus unimpressive, he was repulsive, these verses tell us, despised and rejected by men. What was the state of the men In Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, when Jesus walked among them, they were living in darkness because they were self-righteous. So when Jesus spoke words of humility and light, they hid their faces from him and despised and rejected him because that wasn't who they were. To be known as a man of sorrows, or you may say a man of pain in your Bible, this doesn't mean Jesus was a sad individual. It means that he knew better than anyone else what sin was and what sin was capable of doing. So as he walked on this earth and saw sin, and he walked among sinners. The devastation of sin created in him a sorrow we will never be able to understand. Man of sorrows. A man familiar with suffering. Not only his own suffering, but he came here for man's suffering, to make himself familiar with it so he could show compassion and heal the people that suffered. That's why he was a man familiar with suffering. Unfortunately, pride and self-righteousness was much more esteemed than humility and compassion. And so he was esteemed not. Look at John 1. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. 
Now the Jews that are standing on a corner, they begin to get a little more intense, more dramatic, because now they understand Jesus was a willing substitute for their sin. Look at verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The first three verses, they're talking about their pitiful misunderstanding of Jesus. These next verses, they're revealing the facts about Jesus' purpose. And they're saying, we watched him die. We thought God was punishing him for his sins. And then they realized he was bearing our sins. And then they would grab each other's arms and hug each other and say to each other, you know what, we're like the sheep in our very own fields that just go astray. We went astray from God. And each of us was just deciding how we wanted to live our life apart from God, apart from the words and the laws of God. But God has taken our selfish sins and put them on his servant named Jesus. Nothing was wrong with him. Everything was wrong with us. The emphasis in these verses is on Christ being the substitute recipient of God's wrath towards sinners. He was pierced. That was literal. He was pierced, um, we know, through his feet, probably one on top of the other, one big nail. He was pierced not in the palms, but right here, because they wanted to get you in that tendon so that you had to lift yourself up to be able to take a breath. If they did it in your hand, that wouldn't happen. You could lift yourself up this way. Pierced by a crown of thorns on his head. Pierced by a spear into his side. Crushed in his spirit by rejection and isolation. Crushed in his body by the whip, by the beatings that left him beyond recognition. I read that Jesus suffered all five wounds known to medical science. I won't read what those are, but he did suffer them. He did this in our place for our peace. All we have to do is look up at the cross and believe that God in the flesh on the cross is covered in my sins, that I might have a relationship with God, and we will experience the peace and forgiveness that passes all understanding. His physical wounds healing our spiritual wounds. 1 Peter 2.24 Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus was utterly innocent but totally submissive. Look at verse 7. 
He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he is cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. This group of believing Jews might now be all seated on the corner as they're continuing to talk. And now they're talking about how Jesus behaved on that day. And they're saying, you know, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was bleeding, people were shouting obscenities, throwing stones at him. He never opened his mouth. He acted like one of our innocent lambs that we take to a market to be killed. Or like one of our lambs that stands silent before those who are going to uh, remove its coat. And one of them would say, remember what John the Baptist said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was our sacrificial Lamb. He was dragged away cruelly in violence. He was judged guilty by Pilate. Death was waiting for him. That's what cutting off from the land of the living means. But he was willing to be led to his death for our transgressions. And then they were going to put him in a a tomb next to two other common criminals. But remember that guy, Joseph of Arimathea? He took his body and put it in his tomb for his future. And all the while, we never heard Jesus be defiant or complain. No improper deed, no improper word. 1 Peter 2.23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Circle the word death in verse 9. That's plural. That word is plural, showing that when Jesus died, he died for many. And I also wondered about this. When he died and he said it is finished, maybe God had him placed in an honorable tomb because he thought, my son has finished suffering indignities from this world. He is not a common criminal. All God's purposes will be realized through Jesus, verses 10 and 12. I don't have time to read those, but let me just tell you this. The suffering and death of the servant was clearly the Lord's will. It was not accidental. Jesus, uh, there's a song where he says, No one takes my life, I give it willingly. But I love this verse, Revelations 13.8. He was slain from the creation of the world. God's plan from the very beginning all sacrifices foreshadowing his death. It was for our redemption. Look at 1 John 2. If anybody sins, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And in these verses, we didn't get to read, God talks about prolonging his days. And we think, wait a minute, he died. How can he prolong his days? It's an example and a um, It points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he will live forever. And he will have offspring, us, 
in this room, spiritual offspring, the church. And he says, we will prosper from his hands. And so when Jesus cried out, it is finished. Verse 11 came true. My righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Because he died, we can live. There are four reasons listed in these verses of why Jesus triumphed. They're all connected to the cross. He poured out his life to death, number one. He was numbered with transgressors, number two. We saw that visibly with the two thieves on either side. Three, he bore the sins of many, including us in this room. And four, he made intercession for the transgressors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He still leaves lives to intercede for us today. And now I think that group of Jewish believers would stand up and get ready to go home and they're going to leave each other with some encouraging words. They're going to realize and say, you know, he was despised. Now he's adored. He was a carpenter. Now he's a king. He was alone. Now he has us. He was poor. Now he's rich. He was buried in the dark. Now he's raised in the light. He died a cruel death. Now he lives to reign forever. (coughs) Excuse me. I wish we could pass a mic around. Each of you could share the splendors of your salvation. You would all have many things to say. If Israel had a microphone in the millennial kingdom and they got to do that, this is what they would say. We are no longer barren. We have many. We are no longer dispersed. We are unified. We are no longer at the mercy of other nations. We are secure. We are no longer oppressed and afflicted. We are at peace. And here's some things we would say. We experience abundant life today and tomorrow, Romans 5. We possess a right relationship with God We are covered eternally in the unfailing love of God. Only God would give his life and live again because of his great love for us. Look at Psalm 1611. (coughs) You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. All because of God's merciful plan of redemption through his great servant, who is our great savior, Jesus Christ. I read this wonderful little poem. Steadfast cross among all others, thou art a tree of great price. Sweet be the nails, sweet be the tree, sweeter be the burden that hangs upon thee. For us, God's great salvation. Remember at the very beginning, chapter 55, 1, God says, come, all you are thirsty. All you who are thirsty, come. 700 years later, Jesus replies, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. You will have streams of living water flowing from within you. Luann's going to sing our prayer, so if you'll bow your head and then I will close. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God.
God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Alleluia, what a Savior, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Alleluia, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be? Alleluia, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Alleluia, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Alleluia. What a Savior. Father, in this room, we all humble ourselves before you and proclaim in one voice, Alleluia, what a Savior. Thank you, Father. May we praise your name throughout this day. We love and adore you. In Christ's holy, holy name, amen.